Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, Medicus podcast listeners. I'm your host, Vamsi, a second-year medical student here at Loyola Strip School of Medicine, and I'm joined with my co-host, Monica. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Monica, currently a fourth-year medical student here at Loyola. So we're super excited for our guests and topic today, but before we begin today's conversation, we want to mention our podcast today addresses content including sexual assault and gender-based violence. With that being said, today's episode takes a special dive into sexual assault advocacy and violence prevention and the importance of healthcare provider education on caring for sexual assault survivors. I am incredibly excited to introduce our guest. I have to add this guest is very special to me. She is a longtime mentor of mine and I would not be the advocate I am today without her. Mira Krivache is the Director of Health Promotions at Loyola University Chicago. She is a certified sexual assault advocate and certified health education specialist. She has worked around the country providing direct service to survivors of gender-based violence and promoting violence prevention in schools and community agencies. She's also presented across the nation to diverse audiences about sexual assault, from working with the National Center of Victims of Crime, DC Rape Crisis Center, to teaching a course on sexual assault advocacy and advising students who also want to make a similar change in the world, She has had over a decade of experience working in this realm. Mira, we've known each other for eight years now. We first met when I was a freshman in college, I think the first or second week, and it was your first year at Loyola. You brought together a group of students who wanted to do something about this epidemic of sexual assault on college campuses. And we worked together to build the organization Change, and the rest is really history. Can you tell us more about yourself and the work you've done to advocate for survivors of gender-based violence? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much for having me here. Monica is also very special to me. So I'm I'm thrilled to be part of this conversation and to, to speak to all of your listeners. Um, A little bit about my background. So I was first trained to do sexual assault advocacy in 2007 at the DC Rape Crisis Center, as you mentioned. Um, It's the it was the first rape crisis center in um, in the United States. So I was really lucky to be trained there. And then I would later go on to work there where I was uh, responsible for training new medical advocates. After DC, I moved to Ohio where I was then trained to do medical advocacy there. And then when I moved to Illinois, I did it again and was trained uh, here in Chicago. So now part of my full-time job includes working with university students specifically who have experienced sexual violence and other types of gender-based violence. And then of course, as you mentioned, I teach a course Um, in the College of Arts and Sciences on sexual assault advocacy. So I've been doing this work, yes, uh, more than a decade, closer, closer to 15 years, and I love it. I feel very honored and privileged to be able to speak with students on these important topics. Yeah, that's um, an amazing story, Mira. So I just wanted to probe into that a little more. Um, So what exactly inspired you to dedicate your time to that work? And I guess, why are you so passionate about that? And for those who aren't aware, what exactly does a sexual assault advocate do? And what are your your roles in advocating for violence prevention? 
Sure. Um, so I'll start with um, what inspired me to do this work. I was um, in DC at the time. I So all of my professional career has really been dedicated to working with victims of crime in some um, in some form or, or another. My first job out of college was working for the National Center for Victims of Crime in DC. It's a, it was a national nonprofit. And my specific area of focus was working with um, young adults and teenagers. And it was at that time that I was still reading Cosmopolitan magazine and I, I, I sort of you know, blush as I say that now because, oh goodness, I, I don't read that anymore. But there was an article in Cosmo about this idea of gray rape, essentially saying that sexual assault or that the majority of sexual assault can be chalked up to just miscommunication. And I was really horrified by this idea and that it was being promoted in this national magazine that was especially popular among um, young women. And so I remember speaking to my mentor at the time and saying, what can I do about this? What can we do about this? And she encouraged me to get trained. So um, it was there that I found the DC Rape Crisis Center. And so your question was, what exactly is a medical advocate? Um, so a medical advocate is someone who um, supports a survivor in the emergency room. Um, and it can really vary um, in terms of what the survivor wants in that moment. Uh, sometimes it means getting them a blanket because those hospitals are cold. Um, sometimes it's that they don't understand what is involved in an evidence collection kit or what their legal options are. Sometimes their friend is there um, because they accompanied them to, their ho to the hospital and the friend is just too much and they need some space. And so the advocate is really there just to serve no other one, no, um, no other person's agenda but theirs. And we are there to explain resources, um, help advocates understand what their rights are according to the law, and to advocate on their behalf. Um, so more specifically, could you talk a little bit about the exact training that was required to become an advocate? Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's pretty intense, um, and it, it, it depends on the state that you're in. So anytime you want to volunteer and be a medical advocate, you have to go through a state-sanctioned 60-hour training. So um, as I mentioned, I've, I've, I've done this in three locations, so I've been through at least 60 hours of training in all three states, and uh, I'm, I'm too under pressure to do the math right now, 180 hours of training. Um, but uh, the training includes everything from your basic active listening skills, um, working with special populations of uh, survivors, what medical and legal options are available, drug facilitated sexual assault that we see quite often, um, the neurobiology of trauma, um, co-occurrences of violence like domestic violence and stalking. And then oftentimes in these trainings, they also um, include tests of knowledge retention, and then uh, trainees have to also perform role plays um, in order to ensure that their skill set is up to par. So we did have a recent podcast episode on the role of a SANE nurse and their role as medical professionals when caring for survivors who come to the ER. Can you walk us through what a typical shift is like for you as an advocate after you get called in to see a patient? 
First of all, sane nurses are a godsend. They are wonderful humans who have devoted their life to this incredibly difficult work. And um, my role or our role as advocates um, are made so much easier by their presence. Um, But really, every advocacy call is totally different and totally depends on the needs of the individual survivor and the state that they're in when we get called in. (laughs) So... um, the shift entails we get a phone call from um, usually it's um, a more senior level advocate um, who's on call and they call they would call me and say you need to report to this in this hospital Um, the victim or the patient is a 35 year old female identifying person and that's all the information i would get Um, so i would go to the er i would identify myself and be shown to a private room Um, And at that point, you don't know what you're getting yourself into when you walk behind the door. So um, sometimes, you know, the survivor was sleeping and heavily intoxicated and nothing could be done without their consent. So I would wait in the hallway for hours until they were able to speak with me. If the patient is awake, I would be um, directed into their room and I would just introduce myself what my role is and ask if they'd like to speak with me. And again, we follow their lead. So at that point, the survivor could say, no, I'm good, no thank you, and I'd leave. Um, Or if they invite me in, I'd explain a little bit more about who I am, the agency I was volunteering for. And then my first question was always, how are you? Um, Over the course of the visit, I'd often just sit with the survivor um, as, as I'm sure you know, hospital visits can take hours. Um, some, yeah, so, um, you know, I don't think a, a, a call for me took, was ever shorter than three hours, right? And the longest may have been up to eight hours. Um, so oftentimes I'm just sitting in the room, um, offering my company, answering questions, um, Sometimes I'm in the room while evidence is being collected, sometimes not. If there are friends or family there, sometimes I'm helping to process their emotions. And then sometimes it does involve um, doing institutional advocacy with the medical staff to say like, hey, listen, the survivor, this is really what they want or this is what they don't want. Um, And then once the survivor is discharged, I give them a packet with information on their follow-up options and, and that's it. Just to follow up on that question, are the healthcare providers generally aware of your role or are there times when you have to explain, well, this is me, this is who I am, and I'm an advocate? That's a great question. It totally depends on the hospital and what training they themselves have received. I will say that um, Chicago, typically we're, we're very lucky in that we have um, you know, some really established rape crisis centers here, resilience being the main one, that um, has gone into the hospitals to educate healthcare professionals around what medical advocacy is and the role of the advocate. Um, at times, you know, you're there um, and sometimes you get someone who's cranky and they're, they're not wanting to wait until the patient is, um, is able to give fully informed consent. They just, they need to move beds, right? Um, or sometimes um, they're not aware of all of the resources available to a survivor. And that's why, again, having a SANE be there is so 
um, wonderful for the advocate and also, of course, for the survivor because there is someone who knows um, knows the ins and outs of, of what the laws are and what is available to the survivor. And is it routine to follow up at all? Or do you, you know, I, I know you mentioned um, you give them a packet of information um, in the same vein. Have you ever had an experience where you really felt like, wow, I made a huge impact on this, on this individual? And, you know, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Um, so as a medical advocate, I, I didn't know what happened to a survivor after they, they left the ER. That was the end of my time with them. Um, sometimes the Rape Crisis Center um, would reach out um, to them, but from the point of leaving the ER, the, the survivors are given vouchers to receive free medical follow-up care, um, and it's up to the survivor to, to decide what they wanted to do next. Um, in terms of, did I ever feel like I really made a difference um, it, that's such an interesting question because there are, you know, I, I as I, I haven't been a medical advocate in a, in a couple of years now, I work in a different capacity with students on a college campus, but um, there are cases that stand out in my, in my head um, that I'll, that I'll never forget. And oftentimes um, I remember my first one um, it, and then I remember um, some of the really more complicated ones. So, you know, dealing with a patient who had psychosis or dealing with a student who was homeless and had nowhere to go after leaving the hospital and what do you do? Um, or a student who was severely heavily intoxicated and couldn't give consent. And so those stand out in my brain more in terms of what they were able to teach me about how to support them uniquely rather than um, actually any effect that I may have had on them. <laughs> um, so I have a lot more stories of how I feel like I may have impacted um, students here at Loyola and that may just be recency bias because I've been doing that more recently. Um, but no, there's, there's not one instance that I can recall of like, oh, wow, I really made a difference in that person's life. Although, you know, I'm sure in the moment they were saying thank you, it was, it was really more what I learned from them and how grateful I am for that. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine that given what they went through, that it's just a lot for everyone to take in. And you know, I know you have your own takeaways from that as well. So I want to transition um, into a different, uh, to a different question. So why is it important for hospitals to partner with local rape crisis centers and have these advocates readily available at hospitals? Going to the hospital is really scary, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, y'all work in them all the time now, but um, but for for you know the regular folks, it's 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 a place where there are people you know running around. Uh, they're very important. They have a lot of education, a lot of expertise, and they're using big words. <laughs> and it's expensive. And as I mentioned, it's cold. So um, it can be really um, intimidating for um, someone who has just experienced something really traumatic to to go to a hospital. Um, and um, medical providers, you know, their word is taken as gospel, oftentimes, and survivors enter this arena already really vulnerable, um, and power and control has been stripped from them. So having an advocate present who is there to explain every step, 
every option available to them is just huge. Um, students who, or I'm sorry, survivors who have advocates available to the hospital, um, available to them in the hospital report lower rates of secondary victimization as a result of their time. And they also report receiving higher rates of service. So for example, um, in Illinois, there are certain services that must be offered to survivors entering the ER. It's a, it's a law. And um, as I said, we're lucky here in Chicago that a lot of medical providers have already been trained in that. But think about other parts of the state where they have less resources, fewer resources, and they may not have had the same training. And what an advocate can do in the moment to train um, providers to ensure that survivors have access to their rights um, and to resources that's just that's just critical um, anywhere but um, but especially in places with fewer resources so I wanted to ask a question about trauma-informed care which has been the latest buzzword used in medicine I think that medical education curriculum has been starting to incorporate this topic just within the last couple of years what does trauma-informed care mean to you as someone who has had years of experience working with survivors? So you can look up definitions of trauma-informed care and attend webinars about how to become trauma-informed. So I'm going to take my answer in a little bit of a different direction for the purposes of our audience. Um, I think it's really easy to become jaded doing any kind of service-centered healing work. You know, maybe you say, see the same patients coming into the ER who refuse to take the medical advice that you've offered over and over again. Maybe I'm seeing the same student who keeps returning to that abusive partner. And it is easy to get frustrated. And frankly, it makes total sense to feel that way. Um, but to me, being trauma-informed means understanding why the patient is refusing to take your medical advice. What's behind that behavior? Or for me, reminding myself, why is it so hard for them to leave that relationship? And so taking that time to remind yourself of those things um, and then entering the space with that patient, that student, that survivor um, and continuing to remind them that they have options and that they are not alone. To me, that's being trauma-informed. When we first started at Loyola, um, one of the chaplains was talking to us at our orientation and she you know, offers support to several patients um, who come into the ER or different floors of the hospital. And she said the one thing that she hopes never happens was that she gets jaded to these, you know, because all these people all these patients come in and they're at a stage in their life where everyone, everything seems super lost. But the more she sees these patients, she's, you know, she doesn't want to be in a position in, even as medical providers to see patients and then not feel anything or, you know, consider their circumstances. And so, you know, what you were saying is totally right to um, not be jaded to that process and just, you know, try to understand why people do, know certain things in healthcare um so i think that's super meaningful um about what you said um so what advice do you have for health professional students and you know professionals um maybe people who are interested in your line of work hmm. um i think it's especially important to remember that 
everyone coming into the room to support a survivor has a different agenda. So the medical provider, their agenda is to treat the medical needs of the patient in front of them. Law enforcement, they want evidence and they want to catch the perpetrator. Family and friends likely have a whole gamut of emotions that need attending to. But truly, the advocate is the only person in that room that doesn't care about any of those agendas except that of the survivors. And when power and control has been stripped from someone, when someone's body has become a literal crime scene, don't they deserve to have that one person advocating for them to have their power back be there in that room? Like, sometimes you get all these people in a room and it can feel like there's, there's, there's too many needs that need attending to. And oftentimes, unfortunately, the advocate seems like, um, seems disposable, right? But in truth, they are vital to the healing of the person in that room just as much as the medical professional, um, just as much as the family and friends because they just have a different perspective and a different goal in being there. So I think that that's what's really important for, for people to remember about the role of the advocate and why they're so important. That's really powerful, Mira, especially just talking about how everyone really has their own to-dos when it comes to taking care of a patient and especially in the ER when there's just so much to do. There are so many mm -hmm. different people coming in and out of rooms. If you're an academic center, you have medical students coming in and asking questions. Um, why do you think sexual assault advocacy work is important and why should everyone be aware of this issue, particularly future physicians? So research shows that the way that initial responders to people that have disclosed sexual violence has a direct impact on their healing journey. So law enforcement um, call those first responders like outcry witnesses. Um, sometimes it is a friend, oftentimes actually it's a friend. Um, sometimes it will be medical providers, rarely is it law enforcement. Um, but the way that those initial people respond to a survivor um, has a huge impact. So research shows that if you respond in a way that minimizes what happens, if you respond in a way that blames the person, um, if you respond in a way that makes it about yourself, maybe you say something like, oh, you know, that happened to me too, um, and here's what I did, those ways of responding have a negative impact on how someone will then go on to heal from whatever ex they experienced. But there are ways to actually support a survivor's healing. And the way that you do that is to believe them. Um, so basically it's called offering um, like compassion and empathy, right? Which I know future physicians are, are given some training on how to do, um, hopefully, right? Um, and then, um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is to provide tangible resources. 
So not only to say, I believe you and it's not your fault, but to say, here's how, here's where you can do, where you can go for additional support. And so medical providers have a limited knowledge perhaps of where um, folks can go to for support, right? They, they know how to support follow-up care. Maybe there are wound, there's wound care or prophylaxis for potential STIs or HIV. Um, so their ability to offer um, tangible resources is limited to their sphere of influence, totally understandable. Same thing with law enforcement, right? They're able to a offer tangible resources in terms of orders of protection. Um, if you, they want to file um, a civil lawsuit or they're interested in things like the Safe Home Acts and they want to change someone's locks or things like that, that's where law enforcement may be really helpful. Um, but what I like to say about advocacy is that we're one-stop shops and we know about all of it. <laughs> so we know about the uh, medical rights that need to be afforded to survivors and what medical options are available to them um, post an assault. We also know how to walk a student through the order of protection process and what different orders of protection are available to students. I'm sorry, to survivors. You can see I'm still oriented in my university brain. Um, we also know about community resources that may be supportive of students' individual identities. So if they identify as LGBTQ, we can point them to a community resource that is going to be um, that is going to honor that identity. Or maybe they have a racial identity that um, that really matters, and they want to make sure that they're speaking to someone who understands that that part of their identity. We can refer them to that. Um, we know housing options, as I said, right? If you're feeling unsafe in your home, we're aware of how to get someone access to shelters. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that the reason med uh, medical advocates in the hospital are so important is so that we essentially allow healthcare professionals to do their job so that they don't have to worry about the other stuff. We got, we got you, we can do it, and we can support the survivor with all of their other various needs as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know, medicine is a team sport, and the more people that we have a part of that team, especially when caring for patients who do require more time and attention, it could just improve patient outcomes overall. You talked a lot mm -hmm. about these resources out there and a lot of initiatives that are going on currently um, in various states. Do you think of any changes or improvements that you believe are needed to better prevent and respond to sexual assault? I know that's a really broad question. <laughs> well, now you're talking at the heart of me, which is prevention, right? You know this about me, Monica, that I, I love talking about prevention. And I think in order to really make a dent in, um, in sexual violence and relationship violence in our society, we need to do more in, in, in the way of prevention. And, um, and that needs to start young, right? We need to start talking with young people about bodily autonomy and consent and that it's okay if you don't wanna give grandma a hug, right? Like there are other ways that you can greet them um, and that there are ways that we can talk about toxic forms of masculinity, right? Not, all ma not, not every form of masculinity is toxic, but there sure are some. Um, and how can we address that? And how can we make sure that, um, again, people's identities are being honored and that 
we have healthy communication and that people understand um, how to understand their own boundaries, how to communicate their boundaries, um, that comprehensive sex education is really important. Um, so people understand um, what they like, what they don't like. Um, that's an important part of a healthy relationship, right? Being able to communicate those things with your partner so that we can all have really safe, healthy, fulfilling relationships. Um, and what do those things look like? It doesn't just mean in terms of intimacy. It means um, in terms of how we argue, right? It means in terms of how we um, support one another's goals. So all of that needs to be really robust and available to to young people in a way that it's not right now. Um, and so I think that's where we need to do a lot more work. And more of a, at a societal level, um, in recent years, the Me Too movement has gained a lot of traction. And, you know, obviously that would be something very important for you know, people where something like this is so dear to them. Um, so, you know, my question is, how has the Me Too movement increased awareness of sexual assault? And how has it impacted your advocacy work and the experiences of survivors? That's a wonderful question. Um, what's interesting to me is that as you were asking that question, um, I started to think about all the backlash that I've heard around the Me Too movement rather than the um, rather than all of the support that's been offered. Because I now think about um, all of the the you know mainly male identified folks in the workplace say well now i can't even like say this thing to my coworker, or you know for fear that you know someone's going to report me for sexual harassment and there does seem to have been a backlash to all of the people coming forward saying yes i have experienced this as well um so i think there's also been um an uptick in men's rights organizations and um, organizing around that um, in the sphere of in you know the sphere that I work in, in in university settings right we see a lot that happened especially during the Trump era around Title IX and more rights being um, offered to the accused um, in in a Title IX hearing and um, so when you were asking that questions, that's what I was, that's sort of where my brain went. Um, and so that's, that's what I think about when I think about, um, you know, how so many people have come forward to be brave and, and share their own stories and how unfortunately we as a society are not at a point yet where we just believe survivors. So would you kind of say it's a double-edged sword, you know? So there is, I guess, would you say that there's more, um, attention coming to it, but you're all, but there all, there are drawbacks that come with the Me Too movement um, mm -hmm. and those examples that you mentioned. So would you say it's an overall positive? Oh, absolutely. I think the more awareness raising that happens, the more behavior change we can, we can do, you know, according to behavior change theory, a lot starts with raising awareness of the problem, right? We can't make people um, stop smoking if they're not aware of the linkages between smoking and cancer, right? First, we have to raise everyone's awareness about the prevalence, and then we can actually do something about it. So overall, absolutely. I, I, I didn't mean to sound jaded, <laughs> um, but I definitely think overall it is absolutely positive because, um, 
you know, the the Time's Up fund that that came out to support people that have experienced sexual harassment, um, and and just the increase in conversation and people having critical conversations with one another is really important. So yes, absolutely, overall a positive. Thank you so much, Mira, for sharing all of your expertise. I feel like I learned something new every time. And I just wanted to wind down this episode by asking a final question. Um, as physicians, medical students, it is inevitable that we will meet a patient who is a survivor of sexual violence. And at times we are the only people that they can tell. And when we are in those situations, we know that language matters. And I'd like to have a takeaway for our listeners. Can you help us out with a few phrases that we can kind of keep in our back pockets when initially encountering a patient? For example, how do we ask if someone experienced sexual assault or what is the first thing we can say when someone discloses to us? So I'm gonna give you three phrases that are the first things you can say to someone when they've disclosed that they've experienced sexual assault. They're real short, they're real easy, although somehow I always manage to forget one of the three, um, but I wrote them down for the sake of our podcast. Um, so the first one is, I believe you. Second is, it is not your fault. And three, you are not alone. These three phrases are incredibly powerful. So those are, those are your go-to phrases when someone discloses. In terms of how do you ask someone if they've experienced sexual assault? Um, there are many ways to ask. It's always really important that you reflect back the language that the patient is using themselves. So if they say, you know, hey, this thing happened to me, I'm not really sure, it's important that you then don't just label it as um, sexual assault. You want to um, um, use their own language and reflect it back to them. But you can say things such as, it sounds like something happened without your consent or um, it sounds like some of your physical boundaries were violated. Can you tell me more about that? So those are some ways that you can ask the initial question. And then when they describe what happened to them, um, you say, I believe you, it's not your fault, and you are not alone. Yeah, thank you for that, Mira. Um, that's something that everyone listening can apply to um, their daily lives if they ever encounter such a scenario. And that's something that's super important and applicable. Um, so that's all we had for you today. So before we go, is there anything you want, the you want the listeners to know that we might not have touched upon regarding your field or in general? I think the last thing I'll leave you with is that some people may balk at the I believe you statement, right? Like, um, they may feel like they need to do some investigatory work or they need to understand more before they just say, I believe you. And and to be frank, it is it is human nature to sort of doubt or victim blame right first. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that it's really rare for someone to lie that they've been sexually assaulted. Um, so believing survivors simply means taking their story to heart, listening to them offering resources, it's it's that simple, simple. It does you no harm to believe first. Thank you so much, Mira. Um, Bamsi, do you wanna close out the episode? Yeah, I just wanna thank Mira once again for giving um, her time to us. And that's all we had. Um, and I hope the listeners um, of the Medicaid podcast learned something today. Um, Mira really is an expert in what she does. 
Um, so thank you so much again for your time, Mira. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.